Welcome to a new look Brexit breakdown podcast brought to you by the UK in a changing Europe. Every couple of weeks, we're going to dig deep into our guests area of speciality, explaining the key issues and hopefully making it clear to you that expertise is actually quite a useful thing to have about. If you enjoy what you hear, please, please do rate us and write a review of us. I'm assured by people young enough to understand the interweb that that would be really helpful. Before going on, as this is the first of our new series, let me express my heartfelt thanks to James Miller, who set us on the podcast road and taught us the ropes. Your help was truly invaluable. So our first guest in this new format podcast series is Margaret McMillan, uh, Emeritus Professor at Oxford, former warden of St Anthony's College. She's written so many books that actually if I started to list them it would take a whole podcast, but they range from a book about women in the Raj to that seminal work on the peacemakers and I would strongly recommend that you listen to her wreath lectures on which I believe Margaret you are also basing your next book. I've just finished a book um, which has got the very modest title of War, and it is indeed based on the Reith Lectures, but it got sort of bigger over time. Okay, but we'll come back to that actually, because I want to talk a little bit towards the end about history and, and history versus social science and what we can learn from history. But you've been incredibly busy not only finishing that book, but also writing quite prolifically about covid where we're at, what's going on. And I was struck in a piece that you wrote that you compared this moment to France in 1789, Russia in 1917, and Europe of the 1930s. Do you genuinely think we're at a turning point that big now? I think we could be. I don't think we're in a revolutionary situation, which of course what France, it turned out, was in 1789 and Russia was in 1917. But I think it's a moment when a lot of things that we took for granted or people took for granted about their own societies have been called into question and once you start opening up questions about your own societies and once you start saying why do we do it this way why 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 should we not try another way then i think you are open to change and it does seem to me that with the covid 19 pandemic and the mixed reaction of governments and the challenges both to domestic and international orders that there's been a lot of thinking going on about what are our societies where are they going and people who might not ordinarily get all that interested in such questions, I think now are. I mean, I'm very struck by the interviews I see on the BBC, for example, where you get the sort of man and woman in the street interview, of course, at a safe social distance, saying, you know, there's something wrong with our society. We need to do something better. And, you know, we, 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 and we've lost something. People are recognizing there's something called society. And, and one of the things, again, that strikes me is how often people are saying, I'm getting to know my neighbors. I never really did that before. Now, this may all vanish away, and I may be completely wrong, but living in the middle of it, it really feels to me like one of those moments when a lot of what we took for granted, we don't take for granted anymore. Okay, now if we take those dates, 1789, 1917, 1930s, in none of those cases we'll see outcomes particularly good. You know, it didn't lead to, uh, you know, human progress. It didn't lead to sort of greater liberalism or democracy. Quite, quite the opposite. But you seem, you seem remarkably optimistic when I hear you talking about where we are, about where this might lead. Is that, is that fair? Well, I think so. I think it depends very much on the country and on the society. But I think one of the things that has come out of, of the pandemic is how resilient societies can be and how rapidly, in some cases, governments can adjust to what is a very different world. I mean, the fact, even in Britain, where I'm, and I think there's certainly been criticism of the government's response, but the fact that the government suddenly threw out its ideas on austerity and balancing budgets and not spending a lot of money on social services 
suddenly threw them out and, and you know, I don't want to be unfair to sailors, but it's, it, it, they are spending like a sailor who's had rather a lot to do. <laughs> but do you, would you accept though that the future is, 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 is sort of all to play for in a sense, in that, you know, the other example that people use to compare to these days is the financial crisis of 2008. And yes, people fixed the system in 2008 in the sense that rapid government action stopped the whole economic system from collapsing. But no one actually changed the system. You can say that actually that system still exists now and, and poses all the same risks that it did back then. I know, and that's a problem. And I think we should have learned more collectively than we did from 2008. I mean, we came very, very close to a complete economic and financial, particularly meltdown, um, which would have had effects comparable to the Great Depression or indeed comparable to, to, to the pandemic today. And I think we, we dodged a bullet on that one. And I think there should have been a lot more done on regulation, a lot more done on, on keeping under control some of these very, very speculative financial instruments, which even the people using them didn't properly understand. So we don't always learn. And I hope we'll learn from the pandemic because for sure, we're going to have another one like this one of these days. I mean, that's one thing I think that we've all begun to realize that the ease with which viruses can jump from animals or from birds, from other living creatures to human beings is something, particularly in a globalized world, that is going to be with us for a long time. And we're not always going to be able to find a cure. What would you say? I know you're a, you're a great internationalist, but I was wondering then what you would say to someone who said, well, actually, one of the lessons of this pandemic is you should limit your exposure to the outside world, that you should you should not be reliant on international supply chains because they can go wrong in a time of a global pandemic, but you should certainly be very, very wary about working with the Chinese because they can't be trusted. And ultimately, if you're reliant on even your supposed friends for medical equipment or PPE, then woe betide you because they'll hoard it for themselves. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you can be an internationalist, which I like to think I am, without being starry-eyed about it. I think it is the responsibility of governments to protect their own societies. And I think we have all got very used to just-in-time ordering, just-in-time supply lines, the idea that we can get cheap goods whenever we want. And I think we're going to have to face the fact that we're going to have to produce particularly important stuff like protective, personal protective equipment or medicines at home, which is going to be more expensive. We're going to have to build in redundancies. We're going to have to stockpile things. And these, I think, are national decisions that have to be made. But I don't think that means that we want to live in a world where we put up barriers in all respects. I think our world has benefited a lot from interlocking economic systems and, and benefited a lot from international cooperation on a whole range of issues from health to disarmament to trade. And so I think what we need to do is think again what sort of internationalism we want and what sort of institutions we want and how we can protect ourselves from the negative effects of free-for-all internationalism. I mean, and do you have any concrete suggestions along those lines? I mean, uh, we see today in the Times that David Cameron is proposing a new international organisation to track the spread of diseases across borders, for instance. But do you think we should be strengthening the United Nations? Do you think that's feasible at this time when there are so much sort of nascent, if not actual, conflict between the great powers? Well, I don't see the point of inventing new organisations when you already have ones that exist. I mean, it seems to me much more important to give the World Health Organization and the other organizations which deal with international health more funding, more autonomy, more support. The United States is talking, Secretary of State Pompeo talked about setting up a parallel World Health Organization. That will just lead to duplication. 
And it seems to me unnecessary. I mean, why not fix what you have when you have a lot of cumulative experience and, and the WHO has worked in a great many countries, has a great many contacts. It seems to me absolutely wasteful to think of setting up other organizations and to set up a new institution to track diseases around the world. We already have that. And it's been working, in fact, very well. And so I think this idea that if something doesn't work well, you just chuck it out and start again. It takes a long time to build up these organizations. And I think starting again, we'll have inevitable false starts, we'll, we'll inevitably run into trouble. And it's like the British government, when the, when the pandemic first hit, the British government thought it would do it on its own in a very British way, and no, no need to look at what other countries are doing, which meant that it wasted time. And it could have learned from the example of other countries who were already beginning to go through it. So my view is use what you have and make it better. No, I mean, it's perfectly clear from what you write that you're not the uh, Donald Trump's number one fan. And uh, I don't know whether I'm reading too much into your work, but there is a, there is, there is a distinct normative bent uh, about some of your writings. You talk about the fact that the present crisis could be used to develop strategies to produce essential public goods and ensure citizens of safe, decent and fulfilled lives. Do you see yourself simply as an analyst or are you something a little bit more do you have a cause well i don't know if i have a cause but i think we all have ideas of what sort of societies we'd like to see and what we think gives people a fulfilled and satisfied life and i don't think rank consumerism gives people satisfied lives and i don't think societies in which there are strong class divisions give people satisfied lives and i, I suppose i start with the premise that every human being who is born on the face of this earth has has an opportunity or should have the opportunity to become a fulfilled human being. And that doesn't mean necessarily having a lot of wealth, but having an opportunity to use whatever talents he or she, whatever talents that person has. And I think we need to think about that. I mean, I, I would like to see a world in which human dignity is important. And so I suppose if I'm anything, I'm a sort of very Canadian, uh, very middle of the road, um, you know, we're, we're social Democrats by, by nature. We, we tend to want people to be nice. And it's a very popular word in Canada, you know, and if we say something's not nice, I mean, that is really strong for us. And so, you know, I think I, I, that's, yes, I suppose that's the sort of world I want. I try as an historian, of course, just to understand how things have happened in the past. But when I write op-eds, for example, I think I'm bound to have a point of view. And, and you know, a lot of people say I'm just a wishy-washy liberal. I mean, I, I do sometimes read the comments on my articles, which which sometimes can be a bit savage. A great mistake, I think, actually. I mean, I must say that uh, I'm, I'm such a cynical old fart that I see nice as being a pejorative rather than uh, a compliment necessary, but maybe that's why I'm not Canadian. Now, you, you were talking about the sort of rights of human beings, which sort of segues as nicely to where we are with Black Lives Matter and that whole protest. There's a lot being made at the moment about the fact that cultural values are taking centre stage in political debates. And I suppose what I want to start off by saying to you is, is this novel in, in history? Have there been other times when, if you like, the cultural issue has, has come to such prominence? Oh, I think so. I think you got it very much in the 1960s with, with the sort of youth movement and, of course, the civil rights movement. And again, it was about how people wanted to live their lives, whether they wanted government interference or not, um, how they felt others should live. I mean, the, the trouble with culture is that it can become prescriptive, um, you know, and I think that's dangerous. I mean, I, I prefer to live in a world in which I can enjoy whatever cultural values I want as long as they're within the law and don't hurt other people. I mean, I'm very much with Locke on that, I think. But it's, it's you know, when, when it gets into, you know, you must behave in a certain way, I think that's 
when it becomes dangerous. But I think, you know, revolutions are often about cultural values. I think the French Revolution was partly about cultural values, people wanting to live and express themselves, and if necessary, feel in different ways. But I don't think that Black Lives Matter is just about culture. It's about really hard politics. It's about the way in which Black people are treated in the United States, the way in which young Black people, particularly young Black men, are more likely to get stopped by the police. It's about the fact that so many of people in American prisons are Black, disproportionately, out of, out of, out of proportion to the number of, of Blacks in American society. It's about the corruption in police forces and, and, and the unwillingness or inability of, of local governments to reform those police forces. So I, I think it's about a lot more than culture. I think it's about a series of very important political issues. But it's about economic inequality as well, isn't it? And one of the things I wonder is whether or not the focus on, say, statues diverts attention away from the sort of fundamental structural inequalities that limit the life, life chances of some parts of society more than others. And that actually, it seems to me that some on the right in particular are, are very, very happy discussing cultural issues because it means that we don't have to address those fundamental issues of inequality. Do you think there's any sense of truth to that? Yes, no, I think I do agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I think symbols can be important. I think it was important when the wall came down in 1989. I mean, that was both symbolically and actually important. And I think it's important in the moment of a revolution sometimes to take down the statues of those you hate. I mean, if I'd been in Prague, for example, in 1989, I would have rushed out and wanted to you know, throw things at Lenin's statue or Stalin's statues, because I never wanted them there in the first place, and they were a symbol of domination. But symbolism only goes so far. And what concerns me, and I think probably concerns you as well, is that if we focus too much on demonstrations and on demonstrating against statues and on getting rid of things we don't like, what are we actually doing about the, as you say, structural inequalities, the children who don't get decent educations, the children who need free school meals, the single parents who are struggling without adequate support, the people who aren't getting the mental health treatment they need, the people whose children don't have prospects because they're not getting a good education. It's, it's also about class, of course. It's about ethnicity and it's also about class. And that's much harder work. I mean, it, it takes much longer. I mean, you can have a wonderful moment and pull down a statue and then go home and think, well, that's great. You know, I've, I've, I've made a better world. But actually putting into place the policies and finding the money and working through all the things that need to be done is much more difficult. And I think I would like to see more energy being put into that. And I'd like to see governments doing more real long-term planning. I mean, it's, there's the moment, but there's also the longer term. And of course, you know, cynically speaking, dealing with those sorts of inequalities is potentially rather more zero sum than pulling down a statue, isn't it? Because if you're offering up greater opportunities for some, it might be that those who are used to having those opportunities might have to cope with the fact that they're not being made available to them in the way they were before. So there are really difficult political choices to be made around that. Yeah, and that's what politics is about, I think. I mean, it's not just about making everyone happy and slogans. I think, you know, really hard politics is about finding those compromises. And I hope making it possible for those who have privilege to understand that if they live in a deeply unequal, unequal society, in the end, they're going to be at risk as well, because we know what happens to deeply unequal societies. And so I do think that there is going to have to be a shift in public attitudes, both among the haves and the have-nots. The have-nots have to have more hope, more expectation, that they, they can move ahead and have opportunities. And those who have privilege and who have been able to pass on those privileges to their children may well have to come to accept that they can't always pass on everything they want to pass on. Which brings us nicely, actually, to a theme that's been quite prominent in a lot of the stuff you've written uh, recently, which is leadership. And over and over again, you stress the importance of 
good political leadership. Would you, would you like to sort of expand on that a little bit for us? I mean, why, why is leadership so important and what kind of leadership is important? Well, I, I've been thinking for a long time that leadership is important. I mean, when I was a history student um, as an undergraduate and then graduate, you know, there was a reaction against what was characterized as the great man theory of history, that leaders mattered enormously. And, and I, you know, of course they don't. Other things matter as well. The nature of a society, its economics, demography, even where a country is located, all this matters enormously. But I do think there are moments in societies, and I think it's more important when things aren't going well to have good leadership. I mean, if things are going along well, you know, I don't really care who my prime minister is as long as that person doesn't make a mess of things. But when things are going badly, it seems to me that those with power can really make a difference for better or worse. And I've been thinking this more and more, of course, since um, President Trump got elected, for example, because I think he really has made a difference. I mean, he presides over a party which has certain views, but he's managed to bend it, I think, very much to his will. And he's had a real impact on American politics and on American relations with the rest of the world. And so I think leadership, particularly in times of crisis, war or catastrophes, economic or, or climate change catastrophes, or medical catastrophes like the one we have now, can be very important indeed. And what has struck me looking around the world at different leaders who've been dealing with the pandemic challenge is how effective some of them have been. And the ones who seem really to have been effective to me are those who tend to talk directly to people, don't talk down to them, uh, talk very honestly. I mean, I, th I think it may just be coincidence, but a number of them are women. But Angela Merkel, um, Jacinta Ardern, for example, have talked very directly. They haven't tried to sugarcoat it. They haven't tried to say it's all going to be easy. And I think the leaders who, who have done well then have been the people who have shown that they can bring people with them, explain to people what is happening. The leaders who haven't done well are those who, for whatever reasons, have denied that the pandemic is serious. Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, for example, has written it off. You know, he said that the COVID-19 is just a set of sniffles, don't make a fuss. And Brazil, as a result, and it's, I think, a lot to do with him, has one of the highest rates of infection now in proportion to the population in the world. So... I do think leaders can matter. They can matter for better or worse. And I think you really can't look at the history of the 20th century and say leaders don't matter. I mean, would the history have been different without Hitler, without Stalin, without Mao? Um, yes, I think it would have been. And so I think the leader at a certain moment can really be important. But as I say, I'd rather live in a society where who leads you doesn't matter that much. And one of the things you stress is that for leadership to be effective, they have to engender trust amongst those that they seek to lead. Now, Across much of the democratic world, we're experiencing a drop or low levels of trust in politicians as a whole. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's been a bit of a spike in trust and in faith in leaders at the start of the COVID crisis. But how do you go about rebuilding that? And are there lessons from history about how you might do that? Well, I think you can rebuild it if you do what, what, what works, and that is talk to people as if they're adults. I mean, I think one of the problems with the lack of trust between the leaders and the led is that often leaders don't trust the people. You know, the, the British government clearly thought that if they tried to impose a lockdown too soon, the British public would fall to pieces and either ignore it or, or, or panic or have hysterics or whatever. And in fact, I think you pointed this out, and I think you're absolutely right in another conversation, that the British were in fact beginning to go into lockdown even before the government asked them to do it. And on the whole, the British public have taken to the lockdown very well indeed and have adapted very well. And so I think it works both ways. I think leaders have to trust their people and people have to trust their leaders. And to rebuild it, I think, takes time. But I think it can be done. I think 
leaders are judged on their record. I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the United States took office at a very dark time in American history when a lot of Americans felt their government had failed them and felt moreover that democracy and capitalism failed. And he managed to rebuild trust in that. And I think it was partly because of what he did. He took a number of measures, not always successful, but a number of measures did succeed to get the economy going again and to restore confidence. You know, that line in his speech when he became president first in his first term in, in 1933, when he said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. And that was, I think, very important to get over to the American people. And he got it over. Now, I mean, that's really, really interesting. You, of course, are a historian by trade. And I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about what you think you know, history brings to the table. I mean, can we learn from history? And if so, how do you stop yourself from learning precisely the wrong lessons? Because it seems to me there's an awful lot of history and there's an example in history for whatever happens to suit your purposes at any given time. Exactly. No, I think that's the danger with history. You can, yeah, you can find whatever lessons you want. I mean, you want to be a dictator, you've got Nero, you've got Caligula, you've got Attila the Hun, you've got all sorts of, of lessons that you can learn from them. I think what history does is, is help us to think about the present, partly because it helps us to ask questions. And so if you can say, uh, as you were saying earlier, are we living through a moment like the French Revolution of 1789? Or are we living through a moment like the Russian Revolution of 1917? Or is it more like the financial crisis of 2008? Those are important questions, because it will help us to pick out things about our own situation. We look back at those situations and say, well, yes, that's the same, but that's really rather different. And maybe gives us a better grasp of what's actually happening to us at the moment. And I think history is, is helpful as well in helping us understand others. You know, we, we've got to deal with other peoples in this world. And I think what history does is help us to understand a bit about other people. You know, I'm one of the countries that everyone, except of course for it, is going to have to deal with is China. And I think it is important to understand something about Chinese culture, Chinese history, so that you understand where the Chinese are coming from and why they behave in the ways they do. You can also then challenge some of the claims that the Chinese government and others make in the name of history, because they often use their own history and, and often in a very, very selective way. Now, I mean, clearly what, what, what matters here is context. That is to say, you know, context change over time. And we live in a very different kind of world to the world that people lived in 50, 100 or 150 years ago. What, what do you think is the most important difference in terms of context these days compared to some of the periods you've studied in the past? I mean, some people would say it's social media, which makes politics a lot more bad-tempered, a lot more immediate, a lot more visceral. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the trouble with social media is it's instantaneous and people want reactions instantaneously. And sometimes, actually, you shouldn't react right away. I mean, you know, we've all had experience of, of reacting quickly saying something stupid and then wishing we hadn't done it and wishing we'd slept on it and, and thought about it the next day. And I think we aren't taking enough time to reflect. And I actually don't want leaders who respond instantly to a crisis in the world. You know, I don't want a, a, someone in the White House who says, oh, crisis going to do this right away or in Downing Street. What I want is a leader who will ponder and think and think about options and discuss with people and not forever but i think it's really important to take some time out but i would have thought what's really different about about today and and perhaps the last century is the number of people who now participate in society and politics who weren't participating in the same way before the 19th century i mean women by and large did not participate in public life, whether in, in economic life or in political life or in any other way. And often people at the bottom levels of society, the working classes or, or, or the, the farming classes, didn't participate in the same way. And so I think that's something that has really changed a lot. And I mean, those who participate now in 
public life are a much broader group of people and, and it's 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 really I think very very different. I think it would be it would be wrong of me not to try and end this podcast with a bit of a fight between us so I suppose my question is what can history bring us that social sciences can't? Well maybe history brings us modesty you know social sciences <laughs> well it's not a bad it's thing is it? <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean they're nothing personal. Um, but you know, social sciences because they call themselves sciences, and so they are they are searching, aren't they, for theories that work that can be proven, which means that they work now, they worked in the past, and they can work in the future. And so you're you're searching for a type of certainty that we can understand how everything works. We can count it. We can measure it. I mean, particularly, I think the quantitative social sciences really seem to, to be on this path to trying to think that they can explain everything and, and, and cover all eventualities. And I think history, I think we're historians, and maybe we become like this, or maybe we go into history because we're like this to begin with, I think we're much more aware of accident, contingency, um, unique events, things never been quite the same. And that perhaps gives us a, a sense of proportion. We, we don't, by and large, make predictions, which, you know, of course, is probably rather lazy of us. But we, we don't think we know. And I think that's where history can be useful. And, and I suppose the other thing history can be useful for is reminding us of where we've come from. And I, we should, you know, we need to think about where we've come from and, and, and try to get some sense of where we are today. And also reminding us that the past is full of people who thought they knew the answers to everything, who thought they'd mastered everything, who thought they were very, very clever, and they got it really wrong. No, I, I buy that. I buy that entirely, that actually we should all approach this with humility because we're talking about very complicated things and no one's going to be able to ex explain it all. But I just wonder, sort of at the margins at least, there's not so much difference between the sorts of things that you're trying to do, which is, you know, you talk about learning from history, you talk about historical examples of the sort of thing we're going through now. Now, maybe a social scientist would say case study rather than example, but in a sense, we're all engaged in a form of comparative history, aren't we? And we're closer together than often rigid departmental structures and ref committees and whatever else would make yeah. it seem. I think we should be closer together because I think we have so much to learn from each other. And, and you know, I think it, it, one of the unfortunate things that's happened in my lifetime is that disciplines like politics and economics, which used to be very close together, they were often joined in the same departments, have now moved into separate departments. And even within disciplines, you're getting silos. So in history, you have the cultural historians who don't really talk to the political historians, who don't really talk to the social historians, you know, and that's a shame. Um, you know, we, we're all trying to figure out something about the world we live in and, and about human nature. And, and I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And so I, I I agree. I think there are too many artificial distinctions between the different disciplines and, and we need to talk much more to each other. I mean, and, and the final thing, which is one of the things you're fantastic at, is, is communicating to non-academic audiences, uh, whether it's via your wreath lectures, whether it's via your appearances on the telly and the radio, whether it's just the readability of your book. Do you think academics in general take that sort of public communication role seriously enough? I think... Not always. I mean, you get the academics who say what I'm doing is so abstruse and difficult and arcane that I can't possibly speak to ordinary people because they wouldn't understand it. And that may be true of physicists, although I have met physicists who can tell me in broad terms what it is they're doing without going into the technical details. So I think there's that. And I think there's also, I think, an, an, an unwillingness to get out there and, and talk to the general public. Look, my view is, apart from anything else, they pay my salary, or they did pay my salary before I retired. And my view also is that it's too important for us just to be talking among us, us academics. 
you know, we're talking about very important things. And I think we ought to be trying to contribute to the public debate and, and trying to make, you know, make helpful suggestions. I'm not, you know, I don't think we should go out and lecture people, but I think we can help people think about things. And, and I would like to see us doing more of it. I mean, I think you have quite a tradition here of that in the UK. And I think that's a very good thing. I mean, you, there are a number of historians and political scientists who are very much aware of the need to communicate and what they and their professions and, and their, their, their disciplines are doing to the general public because it benefits us all. I mean, a well-informed public is likely to make better choices, likely to create a better sort of society. But going back to an earlier question, there is still a danger that you sort of morph from being an explainer into being a campaigner, isn't there? And at that point, people might legitimately say, this isn't about them drawing on their social science or historical expertise. This is about personal political preferences. I mean, we've got to be a bit careful, haven't we? I think we've got to be a bit careful. But if people ask me for my opinion, I'll give it um, on current political issues. But if they're asking me about something I've written about, if they're asking about the, the Paris people, conference example in the Treaty of Versailles, I will try and explain how that conference worked and I worked and I will try and explain how the treaty came to be written. But I hope I don't make speeches about how, you know, the peace conference was to a total disaster. It was this and that. And the Treaty of Versailles led directly to the Second World War and all, you know, because I don't think that's my role. I'm, I'm not there to, to sit as a judge on the past. I'm trying to explain to people what happened and let them draw their own conclusions. But despite having written about where the peace conference, what, what happened in the peace conference and where it led us, you're still, you remain, and I like this about you a lot, solidly optimistic about where this current crisis can take us now. And for that, at least, I am profoundly grateful, Margaret. We're going to draw it to a close there, if that's all right. But I think this has been absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for giving us the time. Well, I'm sure you'll agree with me that that was fascinating. History can teach us a lot. And Margaret is one of the best people to talk us through that history. As ever, I think she was clear, thoughtful, and actually quite provocative on a number of the issues that confront us today. A good start for our new series, I think. And that's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And as I said before, before you switch off, please rate us and leave a review. And see you in a couple of weeks.